Well, thank you for uh, working through with us the last couple weeks, special events, the annual meeting, and uh, some time for baby time for, for me with our new, new daughter. Hard to believe she's a month already. And uh, we're coming back now to our regularly scheduled program, uh, our study right now through the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer, uh, as guided by Thomas Watson in his book. Um, I'm going to remind you why we came here in a little while in the study tonight, because we'll get to some sections that drew me to it. And as I said, when I read through this whole section and highlighted trying to find what I was looking for, I said, well, let's use that for a while. Then I can just do some, some, just some refreshing each week. It'll help me with juggling things. And it's been good. So what I'd like to do is just, since it's been a little while, I'd like to revisit two prayers, specifically the, Lord, the Lord's Prayer, the sixth petition of it in Matthew. But first... I want to look at uh, 1 Chronicles 4, verses 9 and 10 again, just, just for review. This is the prayer of Jabez, and again, notice how much it seems so similar to the Lord's Prayer, and in particular, the last petition is very similar to the last petition of the Lord's Prayer, that the, God, that the Lord would keep us from evil, keep us from temptation. Okay, let me read for us 1 Chronicles 4, verses 9 and 10. And Jabez was more honorable than his brethren... And his mother called his name Jabez, saying, Because I bear him with sorrow. And Jabez called on the God of Israel, saying, Oh, that thou wouldest bless me indeed, and enlarge my coast, and that thine hand might be with me, and that thou wouldest keep me from evil, that it may not grieve me. And God granted him that which he requested. You know, when I preached the sermon on it, the message was something like this, um, pray that God would help you live an honorable life. That I think is really the idea of everything in there. But notice uh, the last part, why I want to revisit it. I'm tempted to revisit the other parts. It's such a tremendous thing. But uh, the last part is, keep me from evil. And it's very similar to the sixth petition of the Lord's Prayer. Uh, but notice at the end of that request, he, he also says that it may not grieve me, that it may not grieve me. And we want to remember, as we would ask the Lord to keep us from evil, it's not only to glorify him, but it's for our own good, okay? And then if you want to look with me at Matthew 6, 13, we'll turn to some other scriptures. Matthew 6, 13, Jesus says uh, in his uh, prayer that he gives to his disciples to pray, the last thing to pray, just like the last thing in the prayer of Jabez, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Of course, he has a close to the prayer, but that's the last request. Lord, keep me from evil. We are in the sections right now. Uh, before, I, before I mention that, uh, I almost emailed this to you all. I probably should have, but I keep getting these uh, emails from KPraise. A book that I think is a, something I think sounds pretty good, might be something you're interested in, and I, I think it can relate a lot to what we were preaching on in Philippians in the last parts of chapter 4, but I think there's an overlap in terms of helping us, Lord, help, help us to pray and to remember to pray, keep us from evil. And it's about your thought life. Uh, it's by Stephen Ardenberg. Now, you might be familiar, they have a book years ago that's pretty famous, maybe that's not the right word, pretty well known, called uh, Every Man's Battle. And that's a book that's really dealing with helping men keep their thought life pure as it relates to sexual sins. 
which is particularly uh, a real important thing because of all the stuff that's so accessible these days uh, through electronic things, as we know. So that's been a pretty well-known and useful book. I've heard, I haven't actually gotten it, but I, one day I hope to get that and have it in the stacks for counseling in my own benefit. But this is a book written by the same author that I, I think is, uh, would be one worth considering. And I'm not going to ask if you got it. I just keep noticing it, and I'm thinking, maybe I'll get it. But I thought, well, I'll mention it to you all because I think it, it just sounds like a good one to come off the conclusion of Philippians, and I think a, a lot of an overlap with really what we need to be thinking about with the Sixth Petition. And it's called Every Believer's Thought Life. So Stephen Arterburn, Every Believer's Thought Life, Defeating Destructive Mental Patterns to Gain Victory Over temptation. So you see, that's why I thought it'd be good to mention it tonight. Defeating destructive mental patterns to gain victory over temptation. So, so much of what we need to recognize with sin is it has to do with how we think, what we make ourselves or let ourselves think about, what we don't spend the right time thinking about, choosing to think about, such as just worry alone, you know, from Philippians, if we choose to think about the wrong things and worry... Uh, let this little guy move on here. He's been pretty moody lately. Hey, Gideon, it's going to be all right, buddy. It's going to be all right. He's so, he's, he, it's like he's so dramatic, but he's almost so cute. You know what I mean? Like, he just breaks down so fast lately. Um, he's growing a lot in good ways, too. But thanks for your hand, waiting on us for that. So um, I, I thought that might be a book worth mentioning to, to check out. I haven't read it. But uh, another thing I want to read to you that I... Uh, kind of revisited some highlights in my books when I was writing some articles, a number of books on Psalm 23. I usually end up going back through the book highlighting because I can tell if I don't, I'll lose the highlights. You know, I guess I should maybe switch to pens. I don't know. I I just like to highlight. But um, anyhow, it kind of gives me the opportunity to revisit and refresh on some things. And I want to read to you something that Philip Keller wrote in his book, A Shepherd Looks at the 23rd Psalm. And it's going to kind of reinforce something we've looked at a lot. Um, and talked about, we're in this section right now, Thomas Watson has a long section that we might finish tonight, if we don't, we'll finish it the following week, that we study, not the whole study, but the, study, the section that he has on Satan's subtleties. Satan is crafty, he's a deceiver, he's a snake, he's a liar, he, uh, he masquerades as an angel of light, he's really crafty and wise, he knows how to trick us into temptation. He knows how to tempt us and get us to choose to sin, right? He knows how to lead us into evil with trickery and temptation. So Thomas Watson has been really guiding us through, look at all these different ways that Satan is so subtle and he's so practiced at all of these things. He knows how to do it where you don't see it coming. You know, we talk about those arrows coming at us in the air. You always got to keep the shield of faith up, but they're stealth, right? You don't hear them, you don't see them until they hit, (laughs) Right, So we've got to keep our shield of faith up, and that's something we talk about recently in our studies. We finished the 22nd. We studied more than that, but we, we finished the 22nd subtlety last time. So we're picking up on the 23rd subtlety. We might get through the 27th and be done with this section, but before we do, whether, whether we complete it or not, when I read this, I thought it would be helpful. When we remember, we're studying how stealthily he does this, how he can be in and out. No one sees him coming or going, but the damage is done. So we've got to be on our guard. And as Thomas Watson 
uh, has this refrain through much of this section, can you see why we have to be praying so often, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil? Because we have an adversary who's really, really clever. And he comes and he goes and we don't see him coming and we don't even know he was here unless we're really on our guard. So I want to read this to you. Uh, as, uh, as an illustration of something else we've talked about. And I, I think I'll share what we've talked about first so I don't forget and interrupt myself and just let this, clo- this quote be stand on its own afterward. But I've shared with you, I've heard a few times on KPRZ, one of the preachers in the morning, I think he's out of L.A. Uh, I'm too lazy, I haven't made a point to double-check and write it down. <laughs> but you remember he shared about, you know, Satan comes after us like a lion. And that's First Peter 5, verse 8. But remember, he said that you don't see a lion coming, right? We often think about it as it relates to mountain lions around here. They're, you never know they're there. And if you know they're there, it's too late, <laughs> right? Because they'll be on you. And the preacher said that a lion roars only after the kill. Before the kill, you don't know it's coming. They creep up, you know, like in those documentaries, they creep up real quiet until bam! And they roar more like celebration, but before that. So we've got to remember that's how Satan's coming after us. Yes, a roaring lion, he wants to roar over you, but he's seeking to devour you. And in that sense, he's very subtle, very crafty. So, because if you see him coming, roaring, and you're going to try to get some protection, right? Okay. So with that illustration, and we're studying these subtleties of Satan, uh, that idea of a lion, let me read this for you. Philip Keller, a shepherd, looks at the 23rd Psalm, and he's thinking about, um, you prepare a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. And he talks about how he protects the sheep. He was a shepherd. um, And he talks about how the shepherds protect their sheep from real predators. And the table probably often being like La Mesa out here, you know, the flat area like a valley could be raised up, uh, but an area where you might be exposed and the shepherd protects us from predators. But he shares about what it's like to these predators. They're crafty, these lions, for instance. So that's way more than you need for a setup. Let me go ahead and read it for you. Philip Keller, a shepherd, looks at the 23rd Psalm. Our enemy, Satan, Scripture sometimes refers to him as a roaring lion who goes about seeking whom he may devour. It reminds me of encounters with cougars. Children, I think you know cougars is kind of like a mountain lion. It reminds me of, so he's talking about his own experience as a shepherd, later pastor, but he's applying all his shepherd experience to to the shepherd trilogy. He's written a lot of books. He says, it reminds me of encounters with cougars. On several occasions, these cunning creatures, cunning, wise, subtle, on several occasions, these cunning creatures came in among my sheep at night, working terrible havoc in the flock. Some ewes were killed outright, their blood drained and livers eaten. Others were torn open and badly closed. In these cases, the great cat's seemed to chase and play with them in their panic, like a house cat would chase a mouse. Some had huge patches of wool torn from their fleeces. 
In their frightened stampede, some had stumbled and broken bones or rushed over rough ground, injuring legs and bodies. Yet, despite the damage, despite the dead sheep, despite the injuries and fear instilled in the flock, I never once actually saw a cougar on my range. So cunning and so skillful were these raids, they defy description. At all times, we would be wise to walk a little closer to Christ. This is one sure place of safety. It was always the distant sheep, the roamers, the wanderers, which were picked off by the predators in an unsuspecting moment. Generally, the attackers are gone before the shepherd is alerted by their cry for help. I got goosebumps. That pastor knows what he's talking about on the radio, huh? So it's important for us to study the subtleties of Satan, isn't it? Because so often he's gone before you even know to cry and the damage is done. May the Lord help us as we continue to study his subtleties to be more on guard, more watchful, and thus more protected with the great shepherd. And notice how he did say that the safety is to be close to the good, great shepherd of the sheep. And uh, he uses these kinds of means to do that, his word. Okay, so we are picking it up now on the 23rd subtlety. Satan, like a lion, like a cougar, is subtle in how he's going to try to get you to sin and how he tempts you, okay? So the 23rd subtlety is this. Satan tempts to sin by the hope of returning out of it by speedy repentance. What he's saying is we, we almost maybe sin presumptuously. We've talked about it a little bit. Uh, we think we can get out of it fast. Oh, we'll just dip our toes, right? Or we'll jump in the pool, but we won't stay long, right? We'll get in the hot tub, but we'll just stay a minute, <laughs> right? We won't let it soak us till we are dried out and can't, right? We think we can repent fast and get out of it. We won't let it, it won't really sin just that bad, okay? That, I think that's the idea. He says this, it is easy, no, no, he asked the question. <laughs> is it easy to leap out of Delilah's lap into Abraham's bosom? Well, let's ask you, how'd it go for Samson? This strong, mighty guy, in the end of it all, he didn't get out of her lap. He couldn't get out. He kept playing and toying with her, dipping in. The next thing you know, he's in prison with his eyes plucked out. And the God redeems him in a sense of using him to destroy the Philistine city, but he goes down with it. That's a good question. Is it easy to leap out of Delilah's lap into Abraham's bosom? Beloved, don't believe Satan that you can just sample and minimize the risk. He says, how many has Satan flattered into hell by the policy that if they sin, they may recover themselves by repentance? Well, I'll repent. I won't do this forever. I want to remind you, uh, we had a sermon. You can go back to this on sermon audio if you like. Uh, a sermon on Romans 6.19, and I want to turn there with you. Romans 6.19. We want to not be tempted to think that we can just sin a little bit and repent fast and get out of it. Big danger. 
Romans 6.19. I suppose that's why we tend to linger, isn't it? We think we could just, we think we're safe of its draw. <laughs> um, Romans 6.19. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members' servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so, now yield your members' servants to righteousness unto holiness. Now that latter part, I don't want to overlap. I wish I would have noted the exact name there too, but righteousness unto holiness. The encouragement is you give yourself to the right holy choices. The Lord uses that, builds holy habits, and it grows and it blesses you. Uh, there's a series right now by a professor at Master's College on meetthepuritans.org. Um, I think two out of the four have run, if not three, about the Puritans and holy habits. And they believe so much in you got to keep giving yourself to the holy habits, and they have a cumulative effect, and they help you grow. But the opposite's also true. Notice how Paul says, iniquity unto iniquity. Slippery slope, as we might say. The message there for that sermon was, Sinning sucks you in to serving sin. It's, it's always going to be like quicksand. It's not going to be a day at the beach. So don't uh, allow Satan to tempt you to get into sin because you think you can just repent out of it. Of course that is the call. Repent quickly. Repent. Repent. Get out of it. But you never want to take that risk. And usually Satan's tricking you in a way where uh, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be difficult to, to, to change. Okay? Uh, the next, the 24th subtlety of Satan, and another way the cougar is so cunning to trick us to sin. He says, Satan puts us upon doing that which is good unseasonably. Now, there's different ways we could talk about that. I think we have already related to some things in the larger catechism. But here's, I'm going to try to stay with what I think he's focusing on. He says this, after some eminent deliverance, which calls for rejoicing to have the spirit died of a sad color and to sit weeping is not seasonable. So repentance is good. What he's saying is repenting over your sin and having sorrow over your sin is good, but sometimes we want to make it a, the kind of sorrow that is, is, is really um, inappropriate because we're forgiven, we have repented, move on. You know, don't be so mournful and, uh, there's another word I'm looking for with an M, not melancholy, I can't think of it at, the time, at, the point, at this moment, but um, just like we almost make the sin bigger than Jesus, right? I want to just beat myself, we almost make our repentance penance. And that's not appropriate. We shouldn't be letting ourselves be dragged down into despair. And I want to remind you what we looked at just before, I'm not going to quote it, uh, because he's going to talk about this a lot more tonight, despair. But the last thing we did focus on, he did say this, uh, Satan would make a Christian wade so far in the waters of repentance that he should get beyond his depth and be drowned in the gulf of despair. And uh, remember, that's why I was studying this, because I, uh, in some preaching and teaching, I wanted to try to find where exactly did I get this. Pretty sure it was Watson. He talks about Satan uses everything else, all your other sins, to get you to the point of despair. That's his ultimate goal. That's his end game, to get you to the sin of despair. 
And uh, I won't comment more for now because he's going to bring that topic up a lot more later. But the danger is Satan puts upon you that which is doing good but unseasonable. Okay, you had a season of repentance. Now it's just time to be a season of joy. I think often of Nehemiah 8 verse 10. The joy of the Lord is my strength. But what is that following? They're all weeping. They're all sorrowful that they you know, had lost the law and they're realizing all their sins. That's appropriate. But now Nehemiah says, that's enough. It's time to rejoice. No more weeping. God is being good to us. He's saving us. He's restoring us. If the Lord is restoring us with the repentance, if we stay here and mourn inappropriately at the wrong time, you know, even Jesus says, they ask him, why are you and your disciples eating? Well, there'll be a time where they'll mourn, but right now I'm with them. Why would they do that? You know, there's a, there's a time where it's inappropriate to be giving ourselves to a season that should have passed. Okay? There's a time to say, okay, I'm forgiven. I have repented. God help me now rejoice in my Redeemer and in my salvation. Uh, he also points out uh, Deuteronomy 16, verse 15. Uh, He says, there was a special time at the Feast of Tabernacles when God called his people to cheerfulness. Seven days shalt thou keep a solemn feast unto the Lord thy God. Thou shalt surely rejoice. Wow. Hearing rain right at that moment. (laughs) It's kind of neat. I didn't plan that. Yes, Abraham, you got a question? Mm-hmm. Yep, Martin Luther did a lot with talking about it's time to rejoice. He says if you're a Christian, you should be known to be cheerful, not in despair all the time. And yeah, He's not saying that we don't have times of real despair and sorrow, but again, Psalm 42, Psalm 43, what are you going to do with it? You can take it to the Lord. He wants to take us to himself. And as he takes us to himself in our weeping, he will cause us to rejoice. Now we know Romans says... Rejoice with them that do rejoice and mourn with those that mourn, right? So, it, there's, not that there's not a place for that. Um, but sometimes it's in the wrong place in time. It's time to let it go, okay? Uh, when God, by his providence, this is Thomas Watson, when God, by his providence, calls us to thanksgiving, and we sit drooping, and with Rachel refuse to be comforted, it is very evil, and savors of ingratitude. It is Satan's temptation. The hand of Joab is in this. To rejoice is a duty. Aha! To rejoice. Again, I say, rejoice. Remember how many times that came up in Philippians 3 and 4? Rejoice. It's no problem for me to say it again. Rejoice. Rejoice. I say again, rejoice. It's a duty. Sometimes those, some of us like to wallow in our misery and sadness. God does not like it when you choose to be sad, when you should choose to be glad. He wants you to turn in your sorrow and troubles to him and rejoice. This doesn't mean he turns you away when you're crying and when you're sad. That's definitely not what we're saying. But there are certain times where he would say, There's no more reason to be sad. You are forgiven. Get up and rejoice. I mean, what does it look like to other people if all we do is go around (laughs) 
I guess I'm thinking of some old Mighty Python days, and don't do this, don't look at the movie, but I, it's something I watched when I was a kid, and I don't, I don't know, I can't remember much about it, probably shouldn't watch it, but you know, there's this scene where the monks are going around uh, you know, chanting, and then they all stop, and they have these big wooden pallets in front of them, and they, at the same time in Houston, they go, and of course that's what Martin Luther was in danger of doing a lot he almost killed himself throw him out in the snow practically naked all these things he beat himself you know because he was always trying to do enough something to be rid of this sense of guilt and God says no 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 that's what I did to my son on the cross for you will you not rejoice that I've taken that Horrible punishment that should be yours in hell. Yeah, you deserve it, but I've saved you from it. Are you going to go around beating your head in front of everybody, making it look like it's a drag to be a Christian? Because Christians are saved. Yes, Isaac. Um, so I'm <clears throat> Hold on a minute. Let me get you the mic. Because this won't be picked up in the recording. I should really pass the mic. One second. Let me get you the mic here. Just keep it right in front of your mouth, okay? It's a, it's a tight nipple. And then turn it off. Just push the button when you're done, please. Okay, what's your question? Well, it's not a question, it's a comment. Okay. So when I was reading before I knew that, mm-hmm. um, I read a chapter, and in part of it, this guy wasn't a Christian, and he was, like, walking around. He saw this poor man with nothing but, like, his clothes, and he was happy, and <clears throat> he had everything, but he was miserable. Then somebody invited him to church, and then he said no. And then he went remember the poor man and said yes. And then and, uh, a couple of years later, he was a Christian converted that way. Wow, that's a great connection. So he saw a video of a guy that... Uh, oh, a book. Sorry, a book he was reading of a man who had everything but was miserable. He saw a poor man who had nothing but was happy. And a few years later, the Lord used that to draw him to Christ and become a Christian. Yeah. Why is anybody going to want to become a Christian if it's miserable, Right? What's the? Why would we want that? Sorry for our sins, but rejoicing in our salvation. So once again, we can't be like Rachel. Uh, this is not this Rachel, but in the Bible, she refused to be comforted. When people bring comfort, no, no, I want to be sad. I want to be sad. That's a sin. Instead, to rejoice is our duty. It is our duty to rejoice in Jesus. Um, so, again, this is in the context of sometimes we want to be all sad and miserable when there's no good reason for it. It's not real repentance, okay? And he goes on to say, to rejoice is a duty. Praise is comely for the upright. Praise relates to joy and rejoicing, Psalm 33, verse 1. Then he says, but when God, by his judgments, calls us to weeping, joy and mirth is unseasonable. Isaiah 32, or excuse me, 22, 12, and 13. In that day did the Lord call to weeping, and behold, joy and gladness. In that sense, they're criticizing. Sometimes you got it the wrong way. We should be weeping in sackcloth and ashes. We should be sorrow over our sins, but a nation's rejoicing, calling evil what is good, calling good what is evil. So there is also the time where we should be crying. And I'm, I'm having a real, uh, um, what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, <laughs> Vague memory, but there's a scripture that says a sad face, right? There's a, there's a time when a sad face is, is better than gladness. There's appropriate time for that. You know, so for instance, going to a funeral, everybody jumping around dancing, woohoo, everything's so happy, is completely inappropriate. That's a time for sorrow over the loss. Yes, rejoicing for them in heaven. You know, that kind of an idea. Um, uh, sorry, I was thinking of something else related to this, but I may need to move on. 
So there's also that time where, you know, it is appropriate. And if we go, hey, brother, sister, just be happy in the Lord. But it's a real cause for a time of sorrow. Or it's a real time when we should be sorrow, repenting as a nation, fasting, repenting, that kind of thing. Then it's like just pins and needles, right? Oh, I know what I was going to say. Ecclesiastes says there's a time for everything under heaven, right? Okay. Yes, Gabriel. Um, Can you give him the mic, please? So I, I, so today I almost I I was jumping on my bed, mm-hmm. but I almost I almost heard like something. Okay, let's move it along. You heard? You thought you heard a snake? Yeah. Okay, so we've got to watch out. Satan is like a snake. He's very subtle. He can sneak up on bite us, right? All right, I'll help you connect it. Very good. <laughs> okay, so just basically one of the things that Satan tempts us to do is in, respond inappropriately. Sometimes they say you, know, you need to know how to read a room, for instance, you know. Um, you have to know the right way to act in a certain situation. And if it's time to rejoice... God's not impressed with you acting sad. It actually doesn't, he doesn't like it. But if it's a time where you should be sad and you're rejoicing like nothing's wrong, that's no good thing either. So Satan can tempt us to just be inappropriate at the wrong time with something that is good at the right time, okay? So um, he says this, to read the word, to read the Bible is a duty, but Satan sometimes puts men upon it when it is unseasonable. When would it be unseasonable to read the Bible? Got any ideas? Well, I'm going to answer in a moment, but remember a little while ago he said, sometimes we are unbalanced. We spend all of our time on spiritual things and we don't do our physical responsibilities, right? Or we spend all our time on physical stuff we never show up for church, right? He's kind of making that connection here. He says, to read the Bible at home when God's word is being preached or the sacrament administered is unseasonable, yea, sinful. I didn't need to come to church today, elders. I had a great time with God on my own. I know it's a Saturday, but I made church the mountains. I went on a great hike, spent time with the family at the beach, and we read our Bibles. Probably not as much as they think they did, right? And uh, just had a wonderful time with the Lord. How many people like to say church is my outdoor, outdoors is my church, right? That's a sin. There are times where the place to be reading your Bible is in church on the Lord's Day when the elders call uh, a time for formal worship. That's in our Westminster Confession. We keep it in our bulletin. When, when the elders call for time of worship on the Lord's Day, that's where we belong. So reading your Bible as an excuse not to come and praise the Lord in Sabbath worship, that would, that would be a sin. Okay, so that's the idea of the inappropriate time and place. Okay? Um, so that's the 24th subtlety. Did I get that right? I feel like we... Uh, oh, yeah, 24th. Now we're on to the 25th. Uh, this one will go a little quicker, I think. He says, uh, 25th subtly, the way that the cougar is cunning, the way that Satan is this uh, subtle lion. Satan persuades men to delay repenting and turning to God. So there's sometimes when we have an inordinate repenting when we need to move on. It's, but sometimes, uh, or we, it's interesting, the, the 22nd, I think, was we jump into sin a little bit because we think we can repent fast. But the danger is once we're there... 
He causes us to delay repenting, and we don't repent and get out fast. That's the danger. We don't turn quick. Haggai 1 verse 2, the time has not come. The time has not come. How many people say, well, I'm going to come to church someday. I'm going to get right with the Lord someday. I'm just not ready yet. I still got some things to do. I still got to get some things in order. I still got to make enough money. I still got to do this or that. But, you know, at some point, I'm going to get back to church. Someday I'll go to church. Someday I'll get with Jesus, but not yet. That's Satan waiting for the right time. When's the right time? Now. Now's the day of salvation. Thank you, brother. I'm going I'm to bring us to some of those scriptures. He says this, this temptation is the devil's draw net by which he draws millions to hell. You think of that big net dragging a whole bunch of fish, right? That's, this is the net that he gets a whole bunch of people with. They just, they intend to repent. They just never really come around to it. And then they're dead. Or Christ comes back and it's too late. There needs to have that sense as we're witnessing, look, now's the day of salvation. Don't waver tomorrow. You don't know you're going to get it. Don't go build your barns right, Jesus says. Tonight, you fool, your soul is required of you. The longest poison, he writes, the long, oh, excuse me, the longer poison lies in the body, the more mortal the more it's going to kill you, the more deadly it is, the longer that poison. If you know you have something putting poison, an IV, in your arm, how are you going to respond? Well, let's see what happens. Can't move my fingers, but my elbow is all right. Let's see how far this goes. No. Ah, get it out of me now! <laughs> right? Because you're going to be dead, and you don't know when that's going to kill you, but sooner than you think. The, devil's, uh, the longer the poison lies in the body, the more mortal. So by delay of repentance... Sin strengthens and the heart hardens. The longer ice freezes, the harder it is to be broken. So the longer a man freezes in impenitency, unrepentance, the more difficult it will be to have his heart broken. The longer we go without repenting, the less of a chance we will. Now God can save anything. God can break a rock. He takes our hard heart and gives heart of stone and gives us a heart of flesh. But what is the one of the number one criticisms he has of the church in the Old Testament? You hard-hearted people. You can just get harder and harder. And what happens when you try to do something with something that's hard? It just bounces right off. It can't, it can't penetrate. Now remember the Recently, the scriptures we've heard in the evening reading in the New Testament in Mark, the seed can't penetrate ground that's hard. It needs to be, what is good soil that receives the word gladly and grows and produces fruit? Yeah, broken up. You don't want unfurrowed ground. It's hard, right? It's uh, the, the dirt that Mr. Renner has laid around the yard. It's soft, right? All broken up and that water just gets in there. The only concern I have is the seeds don't spill away <laughs> until they take root, but it's because it's so soft, right? Whereas a lot of that other area, it's amazing certain parts of my yard until I get there with a rake, all that matted up old Bermuda grass and the dry dirt, and it just rolls right off, <laughs> right? It doesn't really do much. I think that illustration of ice, when it keeps freezing longer and longer, you know how that is? Like you find that piece of ice... Ooh, that's been in their freezer a long time. I should have been cleaning this place. That's a, you're taking a hammer to it, and you know it's, it's dense, right? It takes a long time to melt. He says, many now in hell purposed to repent, but death 
surprised them. Don't know why. I think we all lie to ourselves and think we're all, we all got 100, 150 years. What do you notice when you're reading in Genesis? Do they, they had long lives, but is it getting shorter or longer all the time? Shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, until you get to, is it, is it Psalm 90, I believe? You know, if we get 60, 70 years, we've done pretty good. That's what the Bible recognizes, right? So, again, this 25th subtlety, he gets us to delay repenting. I think we should think about that not only as it relates to salvation and not going to hell, but it needs to be just as much something we apply in this petition of the Lord's Prayer, which is for the Lord's people. Lord, please don't let me delay. Make me repent now. Because I'm just letting my heart harden. I'm just letting this poison get more and more through my veins. It's going to affect my organs. It's going to affect my thinking. It's going to affect everything. It's going to affect everyone else. Lord, help me to repent now. Don't, I don't, there's nothing to think about. I know this is wrong. Help me to stop now. I know this is right. Help me to turn to it now. Now. Help me now, Lord. Right? Don't delay repenting. What's something on your mind that you know you need to repent of more deliberately, more quickly? Don't let the cougar get in your life. When he's gone, you'll have hardly noticed. And there's a lot of damage. Don't let him eat your liver and drink your blood, as the illustration was given by Philip Keller. So as Mr. Renner said, I think I won't, for sake of time, go there. But he was quoting, now is the day of salvation. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2. Now is the day of salvation. Repent. Uh, Also Hebrews 3, uh, 3 to 13, as is quoting Psalm 95, verses 7 to 11. Today, while today is today, repent and enter God's rest before it's too late. And he says, you'll never enter my rest. That's Hebrews 3, quoting Psalm 95, referring to Israel so often not getting around to repenting. So today, I almost feel like that's where I want to stop, uh, but I think there's time to at least get through the 26th, and then we'll, next time we're here we'll finish the subtleties. I don't think we can get through 27 tonight, the last one, but that would be a great place to stop today. Let's pray right now. Go out, get on your knees before the Lord. What do you need to repent of now? But let's go to the 26th subtlety. Satan in tempting assaults and weakens the saint's peace. In tempting, what Satan does is he, uh, he assaults your peace and he weakens your peace. Notice he says the saint's peace. Now we just got done in Philippians 4 hearing a whole lot about how to have the peace of God and the God of peace. And I'll revisit that a little bit as we go. But Satan, in all of his tempting, in all of his assaults, he weakens you. And how does he weaken you particularly? He steals more and more of your peace. And when he steals your peace, he makes you irritable. He makes you worrisome. And in those states, you make the wrong choices, you do the wrong things, and you just suck out more of your peace. He gets you to make the wrong decisions that do not give you the God of peace. He causes you to spend time choosing to worry and not have the peace of God in your hearts. He causes you not to think the best things about people and then not have the God of peace in our midst. He takes our peace and then we, we end up giving him more of it. 
How does he do this? Number one, he steals your peace. Oh, excuse me. I got a quote here. Uh, if he cannot keep him from a heaven hereafter, he will keep him from a heaven upon earth. He can't steal your soul. He can't keep you from heaven, but he's going to want to make your life a living hell. He's going to want you not to enjoy the kingdom of heaven here. Stealing your peace, which is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. How does he do that? Number one, by perplexing their spirits. Perplexing, you know. Remember, I think it's 1 Corinthians, I want to say 4, 7, 9, is it, I think? Uh, per, um, uh, uh, disquieted, I think, but not perplexed. I'm forgetting the specific words, but we talk about how we're not perplexed. We don't let ourselves get to this place of perplexion. Um, have a complexion of perplexion. Sorry, let's mess with that. Uh, cast down, but not forsaken, but uh, something not perplexed. I'm forgetting. We'll have to look it up. But yeah, there is one duty, especially that melancholy and sadness of spirit unfits for, and that is unthankfulness. So he says one of the ways he gets us to really steal our peace is to make us unthankful. Which, by the way, two things, remember, are said in the New Testament. God's will for his people is sanctification. The other is thankfulness. But Satan wants to make you discontent and therefore unthankful. And by being unthankful, you will lack peace. He says, but when Satan has disturbed a Christian spirit and filled his mind full of black and almost despairing thoughts, how can he be thankful? God's will is that we would praise him with thanksgiving, right? Enter his gates with thanksgiving, Psalm 100. And we don't end up coming to praise him at all, let alone expressing thanks. Why? Because we allow Satan to take our peace, make us unthankful. Complain and be discontent rather than think about the right things, pray the right things. Now notice this despair is coming up a lot again. He goes on to say this. Uh, he steals our peace by making us perplexed, making us unthankful. He says the devil, by troubling the saints' peace, would discourage others who are looking towards heaven. He would beat them off from prayer and hearing all soul-awakening sermons by the fear lest they should fall into this black humor of melancholy and end their days in despair. So it's kind of like the opposite of the illustration Isaac gave, which Thomas Watt was speaking about. When others see the Christian in despair because they have given into the temptation of having their peace stolen, giving into these different subtleties, and thus subtly having our peace stolen from us. We can be irritable, unthankful. Others don't want to become Christians, kind of like what we talked about already. Why would I want to be like that? Right? Okay. Um, other methods that Satan uses to, to steal our peace. He slyly conveys evil thoughts and makes a Christian believe they come from his own heart. You see that? Like that cougar comes and goes, you don't even know it was him. He slyly influences you to have evil thoughts and make you think it's your own evil thoughts. Uh, a child of God often finds atheistical and blasphemous thoughts in his mind, but Satan has put them there. But when we think it's ours and he keeps stealing our peace, we start to just, you know, we go after ourselves when we should be saying, deliver us from the evil one. He writes this, Satan disturbs the saints' peace by drawing forth their sins in the black colors to affright them and make them ready to give up the ghost. When Satan comes with this temptation, show him that scripture. 1 John 1, 7. 
The blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanseth us from all sin. Do not let him bring you into a place of despair. All right, we will close with, close with the 27 subtlety because it's short and it, it, it ties right into it. The 27th subtlety. Now remember, how many ways, and probably there could be more counted, right? 27 ways he highlights that Satan is subtle and he's wanting to lead us to despair. He goes on to say this, the 27th subtlety, and so we complete the subtleties tonight. Satan, by plausible arguments, tempts men to commit philo de se, to make away with themselves. The temptation not only crosses the current of Scripture, but it is abhorrent to nature to be one's own executioner. To take heed of discontent, which often opens the door to self-murder. Satan wants to steal your peace with all of these temptations to the place where he tempts you to kill yourself. He can't kill you. But you can. And he wants to trick you into thinking that's the best choice for you. And all those other things, you can see why they're leading ultimately to get you to a place of despair. So you turn on yourself to execute yourself. And he'll try to convince you. So remember the giant despair, right? Of course, the slough of despond as well. But remember they're caught in, uh, what is it, castle? Doubting castle. Doubt you're a Christian, doubt your assurance, all those things. And he tricks you with all these things, steals your peace, so you can't hear the preaching, you can't hear the pastoral work of all that is said in the confession and catechisms to get you out of it. And then you end up in doubting uh, the castle of doubt, doubting castle, right? And then you end up in the cage, in the prison of who? The giant of despair. And what does he try to get Pilgrim to do with his friend? To kill himself. And he almost succeeds. He almost succeeds. And he can make it look like you did it. And you weren't even, he wasn't even there. You see how dangerous this enemy, this adversary is, this lion who will drink blood and eat livers and some he'll just tear us up and patchwork us back together, play with us like a cat with a mouse, leave us there. And by the time we even know to cry, they're gone. <laughs> so that those who might come to help us just have a lot of a mess to clean up but aren't able to protect us because it's too late because we didn't know how to watch for such a cunning, subtle adversary. We're going to go on to an important question next time that we will, uh, we will use what I think is maybe one of the most pastoral, at least I think I've used it more in 13 years of ministry than anything else from the confession. Confession chapter 5, section 5. Why does God suffer his saints to be buffeted by temptation? Why does God allow us to be tempted? Why does he allow us to fall into sin? We're going to get into that next. But what we do still, nonetheless, want to recognize is God's, whatever God's decretive will is, remember we've been studying that Sunday nights a bit, which means his overall plan that we can't know, his revealed prescriptive will is to be holy, to be thankful, not to sin, to grow in sanctification in the Lord Jesus, to resist the devil, 
and he will flee from us. And we need to pray, as Thomas Watson so often does, therefore, just as the prayer of Jabez, the last thing he asks for is, protect me from being tempted. Protect me from choosing evil. And as Jabez says, for my own good, that I wouldn't grieve myself. To the point, I think we would want to warn again against tonight, to the point, to the point of utter self-executing despair. Beloved, would you close with me with the Lord's Prayer? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.